Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. You're listening to Queer Talk, an LGBT Hero Word Talk radio show. I'm your host, Xavier Mejia. Today is Sunday, July 19th, and the time is 10 a.m. Today I'll be joined by Elena Pop, and we're going to be discussing her journey to social justice. Here with me is Elena Pop. Good morning. How are you? I'm great. Good morning to you. So, you know, we talked a few months back about doing this interview, and in preparation for this, I've been reading a few things, including some articles, and one of the things that I didn't know was really um, about your journey and how you sort of became this powerhouse attorney. So can you share with me a little bit about your background? Where were you born, um, and where did you grow up? Well, I was born in Acapulco, Guerrero, Mexico. My mother is Mexican, the daughter of a people's lawyer and a revolutionary named Antonio Melgarejo. She married a gringo named Thomas Pop, who had gone to Mexico to make his fortune. Uh, And when I was eight years old, my father left us. And at the time, Acapulco was a little village. And my parents were prominent people in that little village, and she was embarrassed. It was a time where divorce was not that common. So she brought us to the United States to live with my father's mother, and that's how I came to uh, live in Los Angeles. Uh, Her decision, though, thrust us into poverty because she had no skills and eventually, you know, became a housekeeper and then a costurera, um, what is that? A garment worker. Not exactly. A gar- she she sewed for a living. A seamstress. A seamstress that's it. Uh, she a seamstress uh, in a corset shop. And uh, you know, it, it. We grew up very low income and in a, in very bad conditions. And we were evicted once. And the sight of the sheriff at the door made an impression on me. And so to this day, I am a people's lawyer and a housing advocate, in large part because my grandfather instilled in me the value of uh, righting wrongs. And I think I have his blood running through my veins. Um, I, you know, his sense of the, the need to right every injustice, and in part because of that personal experience. Um, growing up in Acapulco, what was your experience like there? I mean, uh, it sounds like there was a sense of normalcy, and then there was this moment that changed everything. So during that during that time, what was life uh, as a child growing up for you? Um, and then how did that drastically change? What was the the then the journey like? 
Well, I think I had a idyllic childhood. We lived in a beautiful tropical setting in a beautiful bay. Uh, early years off the beach, but um, in the last four years, uh, we lived right on the beach. Uh, it was beautiful. Um, my parents were not. Uh, my father had gone there to make his fortune. He was a swimming pool construction person, and Acapulco was just becoming a resort, and so there was a lot of business in building swimming pools at the time. He owned a restaurant and a small hotel, and so we and they were prominent people in that, you know, just starting to be a resort community. When my father left my mother, my mother sold everything and came here with some amount of money, but went ran through it very, very quickly. And when she'd run through that money about a year after we got here, she literally had no skills um, and uh, very little English. And so that is what thrust us into poverty. And I remember when I was about 11 years old watching a Shirley Temple movie called The Little Princess mm-hmm. where her father goes off to war and then is they presumed killed but missing in action and she goes from being a child that has everything at her disposal to being extremely poor and I related to that movie so deeply mm-hmm. um, I was as a 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 all the way until age 14 year old very embarrassed by our living conditions. Um, I remember if people asked to drive me home from school, for instance, I would have them go to a friend's house and I would pretend that that was my house because our house was absolutely, it's just a little shack in very, very horrible conditions. And so, you know, it's not okay for a kid to grow up with shame. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I was about 16 or 17 that I started being politicized about poverty and then um, started doing activism work around poverty and then that shame melted away and was replaced by anger and drive and, you know, the the will, I would say desire, but it's really more the will to change those conditions, not just for me, uh, but also for other people. And I know that, that there were some very key players in your life that sort of help navigate where to go in terms of becoming this attorney that now uh, fights for social justice, uh, particularly around housing rights. Um, Can we talk a little bit about some of those key players? Who were some of the early on key players in your life? Well, my abuelito, Antonio Melgarejo, I think is a key player. He was already an old man when I was born. Um, I knew him but never really talked to him. But I grew up hearing the stories that he had told his daughters, my mother and my aunts, about being a revolutionary. He fought with Zapata and Villa and then became a people's lawyer. He helped uh, write the laws that redistributed land and then worked to enforce those lands, uh, those laws. He was, though, the kind of man that spoke truth to power and so confronted um, after the revolution. He got in trouble for telling the truth. He actually wrote a book called Los Crimenes del Zapatismo that talked about how Zapata was not such a, you know, he was a good guy on economic issues, but did some stuff that really should not have happened. And so uh, as a result, he ended up coming to the United States and then he was exiled and then moved back to the United States. And hearing the stories of how he was all about 
justice and economic justice and hearing and the stories about how he would help after that he returned to Mexico, fight Coca-Cola Corporation, Pepsi-Cola Corporation, all these multinationals that were trying to take land away from campesinos, made me want to be a people's lawyer. So I grew up knowing, being compared to him because I was an argumentative child um, and he was an argumentative man, being compared to him and not always in a favorable light, but I always took it as a favorable comment. Um, and then I would say that teachers really shape our lives. Uh, Roy Malloy, who I would love to know if he's still alive, was an elementary school teacher who saw this immigrant child who had limited English and made me the expert on, I don't even know if he changed his lesson plan, but suddenly we were studying Mexico. Mm. Um, Ms. Roberts, who was a progressive teacher and taught through role plays, uh, and so you know made us very... He taught critical thinking. Um, and Miss um, Goldblum, Claire Goldblum, who I'm still in touch with, who also taught through role plays and, you know, made me the defense attorney to Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, who were killed for, you know, they were accused of being communists and were killed. And I got them off in our role play. And it may give me gave me a sense of confidence. So I was one of these kids who spoke up in class but, but was shy and I would turn totally red every time the teacher called on me and after that experience I was a confident young person uh, with a mission to go to college I also think we're shaped you know, I know I am my mother's daughter she was a dancing queen and a party girl and if you come to my house you know that um, you know we're, we are very big about having community and entertaining and having people there and I love to dance and um, and I think I got that from my mother. My mother also loved everybody. Now, I don't love everybody. I'm a little judgmental, <laughs> but she called everybody my love, and I've noticed that I've started doing that too, and I, I feel like I, you know, I channel her sense of, of being a loving person, um, and my abuelita, who also was a very kind and caring woman, who had the knack for taking uh, what she perceived to be her uh, grandchildren's defects and turning them into positive things. And, uh, you know, if you know me, I have a lot of freckles. And I remember when I was a little girl, the kids would tease me, and then she taught me a poem. And I'll say it? Oh, yes. Yes, please, please. The poem is, Tengo pecas en la cara, pero no tengo cuidado, porque el cielo es más hermoso cuando está más estrellado. Which in English is, I have freckles on my face, but I don't have a care because the sky is most beautiful when it is full of stars. And so her that poem, which I ultimately recited in kindergarten um, after being basically bullied, we didn't have that, that word at the time, mm-hmm. um, again, that sense of being having a sense of being that that was a positive thing. Um, and so I think I'm very blessed to have had all of those people in my life from my father and my grandmother, his mother. Um, I learned to be an entrepreneur and from my grandfather, a revolutionary. And that is how I think I became a social entrepreneur, an organizer with a license to practice law that uses entrepreneurial mechanisms to to solve social problems. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, some of the work you've done through law. Um, but before we get there, I, I'm, I'm curious to know, did your grandfather... Uh, get to witness you becoming a law student and then graduating? He died when I was 15 years old, so he did not see that. But he is very present with me all the time. 
Um, I actually feel his presence when I'm having a difficult time with a case. And I remember I was in Mexico in uh, 2006 when Lopez Obrador was robbed of the election and there was this huge planton all over Mexico City. Um, And I remember being at this huge demonstration. And of all of his children and grandchildren, I was the only one who was involved or cared. And I was alone in the plaza in the middle of this demonstration, and I swear to you he was standing right next to me. Mm. I could feel him there, and I could feel him proud of me. So, One of the things that I truly believe in is the uh, presence of ancestors. And so um, anytime, you know, we, my husband and I and our family, we do something big or special, you know, one of the things we try to do is make sure we always acknowledge the people who have come before us, right? And even the elders in the room, making sure that that we're providing um, that recognition that through their work we're here. So I believe everything you said, I mean, that makes full sense to me. And I'm having this moment where I'm starting to understand more about your spirit. You know, um, I've known you for a while, but I didn't know all of this. And it's uh, beautifully being told. So thank you for that. I'm I'm wondering what was high school like for you hearing some of this hearing sort of you know this um experience growing up and, and you know you did talk a little bit about sort of how you first coped with it and then things started changing a little bit at the age of 14 and you started becoming more, much more vocal and active so what was high school like for you what were some of those uh those days like? Well, two things happened when I was 14. First, I um, started seeing a boy named Brian Bellingham, who I ultimately married. I married him when I was 20. Um, And he actually was significantly older. He was already uh, in his first year of college. And um, so, uh, and he had a car. That made, that gave me a certain amount of status, right? And access. And access. And right, because we could go anywhere. And um and um and also being in love is also a very important thing right um and i was a bit of a pepster not a cheerleader but on the drill team and then on a sp- small precision team and on the team that danced at the basketball games and so so i had a little bit of status there um, but not on, in the A group right you know there's like the cool cool kids right, right. i wasn't one of the cool cool kids um but I was sort of sometimes in that group and sometimes not. And that actually psychologically is, um, like Kathy Griffin is the comedian that talks about that, right? As popular as she is, it it gives you this kind of sort of in-between thing. And I think I'm actually an in-between person. I am a Latina, lesbian, anarchist, that organizer, people's lawyer that fights for social justice, but I present like a bougie white woman, right? I look white. I, because I'm a lawyer, people make a lot of assumptions. Um, I don't look Mexican. I'm a femme. 
So I don't look like any of those things. Right. Um, right. And so that, which is a way of, I mean, what it results in is marginalizing me. I am who I am. This is what I look. When I first came out, I tried to be butch. I <laughs> got rid of all my dresses, cut off all the sleeves off of my T-shirts and practice walking butch. But honestly, some girls can't pull it off. And I went back to my nail polish makeup and high heels, right? I can't pull it off. <laughs> So anyways, I, uh, but I think it also has shaped my character, right? Because I constantly have to be, I constantly address people's stereotypes. I, I'll be sitting there with a client and they'll make a homophobic comment and that, that they wouldn't make if, if I looked like a jota, they wouldn't say, es que el manejador es un pinche joto, right? Which right. has happened to me more than once. So if I looked like jota would be a, a I mean, we've taken the power out of that word, but it would be, what is jota like? Derogatory. It would be like saying dyke, except we've taken the power out of, you know, dyke is now positive also, as many of us have used jota in a positive way. But when a client says, but the manager is a pinche joto, he's really saying that, if it's a very new... Does it translate to faggot? Yeah, I would say probably. Okay. And so then deep breath, and the first question I'll ask, uh, and is the fact that the manager is gay, does that actually have something to do with the case? And then question, 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 and you shame the person through questioning into admitting that they are making a homophobic statement. And then once I've done that, I will say, and you also have to remember that the person who is helping you, you might have described as a pinche jota also. Mm. And so that kind of thing. Or being out, um, you, you know, it is safer for femmes to be out. Um, but being out is more of a more of a struggle in the sense that you really have to be out out if you're a femme. Right, right. You have to say it, right? People don't just make assumptions because of the way you look. So. And so, so you meet this young man. He, well, a little older. He, you marry him, and somehow you end up in college what what how what's the journey there okay. well um very blessed again good teachers there was an english teacher who sadly her name i can't remember right now who um i had been placed in in summer school i was placed in a remedial english class because that was the only class that was open and i wanted to go to summer school and because of tracking i could have easily been tracked into remedial classes but she identified right away that i didn't belong there and so she had me read all the classics and do all the work that i needed to do during the summer to get into advanced placement teach uh english um and so teachers who recognized potential um, I think were a big part of getting me into college and so I was college tracked from uh, you know very early on um, I had a great college counselor and so I got into this into various schools and chose UCLA because after all I am a good Mexican girl and I couldn't go far away from home I <laughs> also the oldest in my family and a big sense of responsibility for my mom so I didn't want to leave LA um, and so I went to UCLA um, I was I got married to my ex-husband Brian uh, when I was 20 after my first year of college, and um, and then you know people change and we grow apart. And uh, Brian was is an absolutely wonderful man who had a certain vision for our life, and I got very politically active, and then my vision for my life changed, and so ultimately he and I split up but stayed friends. 
Um, and I moved in with a law school, by this point I'm in law school, um, classmate who was a lesbian. Uh, and so, you know, sort of it was a one thing led to another. I had had crushes on girls before, mm-hmm. but one thing led to another and we became a couple. Uh, and so that's how I became a Latina lesbian anarchist <laughs> that works for peace and justice to nonviolence. <laughs> So uh, you know, as you're as you're experiencing some of these moments in your life where you're realizing, okay, you know, um, sort of the economic status in your family, your immediate family has changed, and you know you're having to learn some coping skills to get through that because you know you you had a different knowledge and different life experience uh, leading up to that. So. Through that, were there any sort of queer realization moments, or was that not even an issue then? Oh, mm-hmm. oh boy, uh, this one's a little tough. Um, so I, I came to realize much later in life that I probably was in love with my best friend in high school, in junior high and high school. Mm-hmm. Um, I hated all her boyfriends. She hated my boyfriend. We were very, very close. And when she moved away, the moment of separation, she was fine saying goodbye to her b- boyfriend. But when it was, when she and I said goodbye to each other, it was extremely, it took two people to tear us apart. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it was a very, very emotional moment. But had no idea. I mean, I had no models. I didn't even know lesbians existed. I'd never been exposed in any way. When I was in college, as I'm planning my wedding, um, there was a woman in my class, and I realized that there was this little bit of, like it was different, right? How I, how I felt about her was different, but um, I chalked it up as I'm learning feminism, and it was a women's studies class, so it must be sisterly solidarity mm. I'm feeling. Not, never took any action. These are, again, realizations that click after I actually come out. And then in law school, I had a crush on a, a law school roommate. She wanted me to get involved in planning this conference. And I agreed to do it because I didn't have a car, and it meant that I could go with her to the meetings. Um, and so, but then I told that story to my roommate, who was a lesbian, and I think that that's what, oh, okay, there is hope here. This is not really a straight girl. And then I think that's how one thing led to another. Um, so I did have those um, moments, but realized that they were moments in retrospect, in as opposed retrospect. to recognizing them at the moment as lesbian moments. I mean, I would say that I, I mean, if I, I think most people are bisexual in an ideal world, mm-hmm. most of us would be very, very fluid. I think very few people are at the, you know, it's a bell-shaped curve with very few people at the end. And I'm probably flat out, right? I'm not flat out, but right in the middle of that bell. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I am very, I, I have been a lesbian for, since 1981, uh, identified as a lesbian since 1981, um, but I before that, I mean, I was married to a man and had, um, you know, so. So when you come out in 1981, I, I'm thinking about the time in 80, in the in the early 80s, yeah. right? Um, the movement, the community, was a whole other world. Right. Uh, my belief and my hope more than anything is that, you know, young people who are coming out today have have it 
a, a lighter experience. What was that experience like for you? Um, you were in school. What what was what led to the decision to claim your queerness, your your lesbianism? Um, my uh, so my law school roommate comes into my, well, first there was a lot of sexual tension for a lot of months before anything ever happened, right? And one day she comes into my room and she says, I want to talk about the tension between us. And I'm like very coyly say to her, what tension? <laughs> and so I feel like so she used the word sexual tension. And uh, and I said, why do we need to talk? Why don't you just come and kiss me? And that was it. And the next morning I felt like, wow, you know, that... So it was like an aha moment for me, right? It was... I, I was happy, I was thrilled, I wanted to shut it off the rooftop, but she was a little closeted, or not a lot, a little, a lot closeted. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people started to suspect right away, right? So I, I remember a, a classmate who used to always tell us, you look, guys both have your hair, your hair is wet. Both of you have your hair wet. It's, did you take a shower together? So those little hints, and she would get mortified and I would be playful with it. The decision to actually come out, out happened because that conference that I mentioned um, was a national conference. And the year after it was in L.A., it was in New York, and I wanted to be on the advisory board. And it was one of those advisory boards that required 10% lesbians, X% disabled women, X% women of color, X% low-income women. We added up the percentages. It was like 650%. So in order to qualify to be on, you had to represent more than one group. And we would get these applications, you know. Uh, you know, I'm an African-American, lesbian, disabled, of Appalachian background. Okay, you're in, right? Mm-hmm. And so I wrote a very campy little, I'm a Latina baby, dyke, blah blah right? And that was the f- opening line of that application. We were in the middle of a big bronca, a big fight internally in this organization that I was working in in that time. And the executive director wanted me to make a certain decision, and I was voting against him. Um, he went through my desk and found that and brought me into his office and he had it sitting right facing me and he points to it and he says, I need for you to do X, Y, Z. And I'm like, oh, hell no. I got on the intercom, called a staff meeting, immediately brought all the staff into the room, came out and then got on the phone to every board member and came out and I just came out that, that moment because Secrets can only hurt you if they are secrets, right? right. So I, I am a woman that is very open. I don't have secrets. Um, you can only be blackmailed if you are trying to hide something. And so, um, you know, uh, I think that we need to be very careful on social media. I see young people posting stuff on social media that they shouldn't post. Um, so there's a difference between being um not being concerned about privacy, I am, I am concerned about privacy, but I also don't have secrets. I, You're transparent. I am very transparent. That sounds like a powerful moment, a powerful moment that involves a lot of truth, you know. And I, I hear you stand towards a stand for a lot of social causes, and in this case, this was like your own personal sense of self that you were standing for. Um, you know, you have been involved with a lot of organizations. Can you share with us a little bit about those involvements and um, where you are in, in those uh, organizations today? 
Sure. So, um, you know, I I was at the Legal Aid Foundation of Los Angeles. Actually, I was at a place called Westside Legal Services for a, uh, right out of, well, even before that. Graduating from law school, Ocean Park Community Center, we're, uh, doing homeless prevention work, uh, and then Westside Legal Services, doing access to justice work for low-income people, and then from their Legal Aid Foundation of Los Angeles. And when I was at the Legal Aid Foundation of Los Angeles, I realized that legal aid offices turn away 98 out of every 100 people that need help. And in the housing context, what it means is that 70,000 evictions get filed. That doesn't include all the people that get pushed out because they don't even wait long enough to defend themselves in court. And out of those 70,000 evictions, at the time in 2003 when I realized this, 1,300 were being represented. Um, that means that, what, 69,000 people go to court alone and 99% of them have a bad result. They either lose or enter into a bad deal. That then affects your life for the next 10 years and sometimes longer if there's a money judgment against you. It's on your record. It makes it difficult for you to rent another apartment. And so I decided that I wanted to solve that problem. So today I'm the executive director of the Eviction Defense Network. It's a housing rights organization. It's an access to justice organization. It is a model for closing that 98% access to justice gap so that we have a system where a range of the services that go from free through legal aid to market rate through private attorneys with these low bono programs charging based on ability to pay. We are big on prevention. We do community presentations uh, that are all about stopping people from making mistakes that will get them into eviction or cause them to lose their homes. And we do consultations in the office for free, donation appreciated, but no one turned away due to lack of funds to stop an eviction. And once you're in eviction, though, we charge between $500 and $1,200 if you're moderate income or below. We also have pricing for folks that have the capacity to pay. Um, that is above $1,200. And we use, so basically the higher rate cases subsidize the little old lady who has no money and who we have to represent for a very low rate and payment plans are available. We're all about 100% access to justice, making sure that everyone has representation. I'm trying to think about the best way to, to sort of ask and frame this, this question because um I understand very well what's happening in not only LA County but throughout the the country in terms of, you know, gentrification and all the issues that come with that. That being said, for someone that doesn't necessarily understand this either because they don't know anybody going through this experience or just sits in a maybe in a more privileged uh seat, what what are some of the issues that are are uh, allowing sort of these evictions to take place. You know, I think some people may have this notion that, oh, if you're being evicted, it's because you haven't paid your rent for six months and you're selling drugs and, a, you know, a sex working ring in the Mac. You know, what, what, are, what sort of um, is taking place that, you know, folks find themselves in situations that, that require this kind of legal aid? 
Sometimes people get evicted because they didn't pay their rent. It won't go for six months. Mm-hmm. Uh, generally, landlords will serve a three-day notice to pay rent or quit as soon as the rent is late. And just because you didn't pay your rent doesn't mean you're a bad person. We're in a bad economy. In a bad economy, people are not not going to have the funds or maybe they have some tragedy in their life or something changes. What we do with those cases is work to stabilize the family, work to get them enough time, some money saved, a clean record so they can move on someplace else. Um, But often what the cases that we deal with are cases where there is a below market rate tenancy because it's protected either by a subsidy from the government or rent control. And what the owner really wants is to kick out that family so they can raise the rent to whatever they can get from someone new coming in unrestricted by rent control. And those cases are the ones that we fight very hard for because those rent-controlled units and those cities that have rent control locally are Los Angeles, West Hollywood, and Santa Monica. Those rent-controlled units are valuable assets to the community where low-income people can live. So we fight very, very hard to make sure that people are not displaced from those units. Often the charges are trumped up. What the landlord is saying didn't really happen. Uh, and uh, sometimes people do make a mistake and don't pay the rent, but that doesn't mean you should end up homeless because you um, you know, missed a rent payment and now have all of the money. So those folks we work very, very hard to keep in place. The, th- the message for tenants, I think, is at the very first sign of trouble, please come to our office. Can I give the address? Please. We are located at 1930 Wilshire Boulevard, Suite 208. We are open Monday through Thursday, 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., Friday, 9 to 6. We also do intake in the community, and to get the schedule for that, you can go on our Facebook page. Eviction Defense Network uh, is on Facebook. Our website is edn.la, but I understand we're having a little bit of trouble with it right now. Don't lose confidence in us because of that, but ednla.org. Uh, you, we're also in the phone book. Don't call. If you call, they're going to tell you. Walk into our office Monday through Thursday from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. or Friday 9 to 6 at 1930 Wilshire Boulevard, Suite 208. We're on a metro stop. I get lots of Facebook messaging or Facebook posts. Elena, this is happening, and then they're laying out their entire case. Don't do that. First of all, it violates the attorney-client privilege to ask a lawyer in a public setting. Your landlord's going to find it, so that's not good. And I'm not on Facebook all the time, and so I miss those messages. Uh, Don't send me an email either, and don't call me. Walk into the office Monday through Thursday, 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. I have 21 amazing, qualified, committed, hardworking, salt-of-the-earth, best people ever, uh, ready, waiting, eager to help you. Um, Sometimes people want me because I have a lot of experience. I have trained and supervised all of them, and they're nicer than I am. I'm like, as I get older, I get more impatient. (laughs) And so they are super sweet and nice and wonderful and ready and eager to help, and I supervise everything they do. As as we start wrapping up, I want to make sure that we talk a little bit about some of your accolades. Oh. You know, um, when I first met you, it was on a, on a bus heading to Fresno during the meet in the middle rally. Um, you know, and at the time I met you and, um, I, I met newly 
I, I shouldn't say newly married, but you were newly married then. Well, we got married in the can. Wasn't it during the during well, the? We got married the night before the election, but we have been together since nine. It'll be twenty-two years in November. And so you know, I, I know that a lot of folks in the community see you and Ridge as. Um, you know, pseudo parents also, you know, I, I'm out and about and I'll hear someone say, oh, I was with dad or I was with mom. And, and you know, they're talking about you and Ridge. Um, what what has that relationship been like? Because I know there's been uh, a love that exists between you, but there's also been some partnership um, in some of the the community work, right? So Ridge and I met at Lesbianas Unidas Retreat, um, and we have been together for 22 years, I would say, in a perfect conflict-free relationship for the first 17 years. I think most people in the community know that we are currently having issues. We are still living together, and we're trying to rebuild the relationship. Uh, What it will rebuild to, we're not sure, um, but we um, are definitely working on it. And we are sort of actors in our community as a couple and continue to be. So on the second Saturday of every month, we have a gathering at our house and folks are welcome to come. It starts at six o'clock and it's a place, a way to build community. Um, We have lots of events at our house, fundraisers, holiday parties. We have a Thanksgiving on Thanksgiving and a Thanksgiving the day after Thanksgiving. We do Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, New Year's Eve and New Year's Day as sort of open houses so that folks can come in and out. We have eight adopted children. We The youngest one was adopted at age 18. I like to know that they are already good people before I adopt them. I would have had children of my own, but I was afraid that they would turn out to be Republicans, and I was not willing to take that chance. So... Um, and that's only half a joke. I mean, I really, you know, so many progressive activists, you know, give birth to very conservative children. And I didn't really want to deal with that. I wanted, but so I make family with, um, and Ridge and I make family with young people who, you know, want to, to be part of our lives. And we currently have eight. And yes, they do call us mom and dad. Uh, uh, one of them in particular started this little joke about introducing us as his logical per- parents as opposed to his biological parents, <laughs> although he has fabulous biological parents who are very supportive of him. And one day his father introduced me as this is, I'm, I'm not sure if I should, this is Jonathan's uh, logical mom. <laughs> and so it's become sort of a joke and uh, in a, you know, a, a playful way of talking about it. I, you know, my mother adopted, when my mother died, um, she was in intensive care for two weeks after an accident, or actually more than that, for a long time after an accident, uh, a couple, maybe seven weeks after an accident. One day the nurse comes to me and says, I have 20 people who have said they are their daughters. Uh, How many daughters does she have? And I look at the list and my biological sister was missing. I said, add Jeanette Pop. And if anybody else says to you that that they're her daughter, believe them. As an unlimited number of daughters, you're not going to deny her those visits, right? And so when she died, we were in a circle with lots of women who, you know, who had a sense of her as a mom. I think a lot of our parents don't accept us. And my mother, um, when I came out to my mother, I gave her a book on Latina lesbians and I inscribed it. I know you will love me in spite of this, but that is not good enough. You must love me because of it. Mm. 
um, you have a year to figure it out. And I gave her a PFLAG brochure, and she got right on it, became very active in PFLAG, became the con at a time when PFLAG didn't have a lot of Latino parents. She became the Latino liaison to to Latino families, and so she would call me. Yeah, I, I, t- I already talked to these mom and dad, and I can't get through them. Can you come and have dinner with us so I can help them? And her analysis is very simple. This is your kid. Love your kid, right? Accept them the way they are. Uh, not a lot of theory behind it. Just a lot of kindness and and good heart. And I think that that coming out in the way that Ridge and I interact with young people and in the way that we interact with friends and family and making chosen family in our home. Thank you so much for joining me on a Sunday. Um, This has been a fantastic interview. You know, I've known you for a while, for several years, but I've learned so much more about you today. And I love every moment of this interview. Thank you. It's been a a gift for um, all our listeners. And part of the the reason I I do this work is I want to make sure that we have this sort of uh, stories that we leave behind for, for people to know what sort of allowed us to be these um, members in the community. And I think you've done a wonderful job and congratulations on just the success of being Elena, and you know, I just I, I'm in love with everything that you stand for. So thank you again, once again. Um, you're listening to Queer Talk for more information on this interview and past interviews. Please visit lgbthewards.com. Thank you, Elena. Thank you. It was really fun. Have a good one. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.